0: For it is better to suffer for doing evil, or, oh gosh, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, (laughs) than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah.
1: Are we good? Yes. I'm always worried I'm going to screw up, and I I don't need to worry about that anymore. Someone else did. Um, Takes the pressure off. It's good. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So, watermark 201. I like to just always um, explain a little bit. Um, our, our sort of mottos for our, our church, our slogan, if you, I don't know what, what people call these things, but truth, beauty, community, and motion are the four things that um, that we believe make up our vision of who we are, and so that's what the Watermark 201 class is going to be, um, and it's going to be very conversational, it's going to be this kind of experimental kind of class thing where I, I want you to ask questions, I, wanna talk, I want to talk, I want your thoughts on things, and I'm going to sort of... Uh, Try to lay as many of these things out as I can if we don 't have time then won we'll, finish we 'll have another one another time and so it 's going to be I think a lot of fun a lot of a lot of discussion about why we look at things the way that we do, um, why truth is important, what, where the idea of beauty comes from in in our vision statement um, community obviously why is it why is community important? why do people need to be together and, and living life together and motion what are we here for what do we do how do we respond to everything so that's going to be uh, the Watermark 201 class, um, and there will be barbecue. So you, if you don't like, sign up ahead of time on the city, then there will be no barbecue for you. And so it's a, I, think, I think it's a pretty good reason. I myself signed up myself four spaces, so I get four <laughs> servings of barbecue. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage and figure out what the heck is going on here. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we love you we ask for your wisdom and your knowledge. We ask for you to fill us this morning. Um, Make yourself known to us. Remind us of your presence, of your infinite love that is and blessings that are being poured out upon us as we sit here. Uh, Remove the distractions of our week. Allow us to be present Um, and to really ponder what your words mean for us the weight of all these things and what it means for our lives bind us together in unity give us strength give us uh, um, not just knowledge but wisdom about how to apply this knowledge to our lives give us things we haven't heard yet things that are new and exciting Um, help us to embrace a bit of the mystery that is here in this passage um, and to keep searching kind of lean into that thank you God speak through me Allow me to be clear-headed, and uh, in your name, amen. Okay, so this is going to be a weird one. Um, I promise you, it's a little out of the ordinary. Um, One of the reasons is that there's not a lot of visuals to explain the things that I wanted to explain, so I had to draw a bunch of them, so that's going to be something special. I draw like a two-year-old. I know because I have one, and I'm like, hey, we're the same. Um, (laughs) Twinsies in our drawings. I want to start off by, by reading a quote about this passage that Martin Luther said. He writes this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I do not know for certainty what Peter means at all. <laughs> Let's take communion. Um, no, that's... Um, as you go through commentaries of this passage, that's pretty much the general consensus. It's kind of like, uh, oh. um, It's very confusing. There's a lot of mysterious stuff in here. Um... And a lot of interesting things and conversations have come out of this passage. One of them happened in about the 5th century um, when the Apostles' Creed was put together. And because of this verse and because of uh, something in Acts um, chapter 2, hold on, I've got to back my notes up. I've already done this today. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 27, uh, mixed with this passage, uh, people came up with the idea that um, Jesus, after he died, descended into hell. And you can see that right here in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, he was crucified and he died and he was buried and descended into hell. Now, that's not right. That's not biblical in any way. Um, maybe you've heard this before. Um, this comes from a complete separ- separation from uh, really when, when the, the church in Rome was being established and they were distancing, distancing themselves from, the, from Judaism And they they also lost a lot of meaning and context. And so in Acts, it talks about Jesus uh, being sort of retrieved, if you will, saved from from Hades. Um, That's the old uh, Jewish way of talking about um, death. They didn't have, the ancient Jews, you may not know this, um, up until even in the first century, the Jews didn't have a well-established doctrine of the afterlife. They didn't necessarily believe in heaven or hell. It's really interesting when you actually read the Old Testament. There's all kinds of passages, um, a lot of them from Psalms. Here's one from Isaiah 38. Um, for Sheol. Sheol is another word for Hades. It's their idea of what it is. And I'll explain it in a second. Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Um, Psalm 6 5, In death there is no remembrance of you, in Sheol who can give you praise. And then, and then the writer of Psalms talks about how the dead, in Psalm 115, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any go down into silence. The general idea was that there was this – after you died in ancient Judaism, there was this holding sort of place, and it was gray, and it was murky, and it was a place of forgetfulness as they described it. Sometimes it's called Sheol, sometimes Hades, and sometimes Abaddon, um, uh, the pit. It was just sort of this they, – they weren't really sure what happened. Uh, they did have a theology of resurrection, which is vitally important to understand when, when reading the teachings of Jesus. Um, and what exactly happened to Jesus. They all believed in a universal resurrection one day that the God's people would be brought back to life in this world in a kingdom led by God himself, Yahweh, there in their midst. Um, but as far as uh, the separation from God and then present with God, they didn't have like this fully fleshed out doctrine of this. And so when you read the Old Testament, you don't really see that. You see that a lot in the New Testament. There is um, Jesus teaches and he taught his followers that there is... Um, separation from God and there is presence with God after death and, and it all is heading towards sort of resurrection is the ultimate goal. Um, not this disembodied flying away for all of eternity. Um, but instead, resurrection. New heaven, new earth. All of that. Um, and there's all kinds of words to describe what we call hell. They all have different meaning. They all have different descriptors. There's Tartarus. There's Gehenna. There's all kinds of words. Um, and then there's all kinds... But they're all negative. They're all negative. They're all bad. Um, and then there's all kinds of ways to describe sort of what, what we call heaven. It's really being in the presence of God. Um, and one of those ways. Oh, I found a dead spot. Um, uh, one of the ways to describe it is um, it's kind of my favorite. It's the streets of gold and the pearly gates because when you're in the presence of God, um, things are good and you don't have need for these earthly things anymore. So we have a bunch. What are we going to do with a bunch of gold? I don't know. Pave a street with it. We don't need it. Uh, what are we going to do with, you know gates are usually meant to hold um, to, to guard you know things like pearls and now we have all these let's just put them on the gates pearly gates hey sounds good um, and in other words all of this is describing there is nothing else to want for in the presence of God and so there is this th- this is what um, sort of the ancient idea of Judaism and, and, then, and then Christianity this, this is where things kind of parted and, and when this was written the Apostles Creed they were kind of separated from that so any interpretation you read about this, trying to say that Jesus went into hell and, and preached to people in hell, that's just bad interpretation. And then there is this other way of looking at the passage that you'll find scholars say. It's kind of very mystical. There's this ancient book called Enoch. Um, and Enoch was a character in the Old Testament who the scriptures just say, Enoch walked with God and then he was no, no more for the Lord took him doesn't say he died. It doesn't say anything like that. And so, uh, leading up into the first century, there's been a lot of writings about what exactly this means. Who was this Enoch guy? And why did God do this for him? Um, and one of the things that came out of this was there was a Jewish literary device that people would use where they would write a book from someone else's point of view. Um, and so some scholar wrote a book from Enoch's point of view, and there's actually several of these. And in, um, this is a regular thing people would do. This is where you get the Gnostic Gospels. It was, we look at it as, oh, it's a fake. It, they didn't look at it as a fake. They looked at it as a literary device, a way of sort of doing poetry and sometimes political argument. The Gospel of Mary is this thing where somebody wrote from the point of view of Mary, and it's this political co- commentary on... The, and, and then you have the Gnostic Gospels. You have Thomas. You have all this. Um, so it was a literary device. People used this book. wasn't really written by Enoch. Um, but... Um, the reason that Enoch is brought into the conversation about this is simply because of, um, in 1 Enoch chapter 12, there is a story about Enoch being commanded by God to go into Hades and chastise a group of angels before the big flood for seducing women, stuff like that, um, and banishing them to darkness forever and ever and ever. Sounds a little bit like what's going on here. talks about a flood and going to speak to people who are separated from God in prison. Um, But there's not really a big reason to to think that way um it's it's nice it's fun to talk about it's ancient jewish legend um and if if that was something that peter was trying to say then that was a message for the first people who would have understood it the 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 recipients of this letter um by the way enoch fun fact this is a freebie um if you saw that movie noah with the rock monsters did you see that movie it was weird Um, um the rock monsters are mixed between something that happened in the book of Enoch, mixed with this really bad theology of the Nephilim, all kind of put together to be like, boom, rock monsters. Okay? So there's that. Um, anyways, that's not here. here. No, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's so weird, might as well throw it in. Um, anyways, we're going to get to, uh, we're going to start actually right, sort of right in the middle of this passage, because I'm going to try to bring some sort of level-headed sense to it. I can't. I can't fully tell you what it means. Nobody really can. And the people who say that they fully understand what it means think they know what it means. They probably don't. Um, this is a very confusing passage, but we're going to start right here in verse 20. It says this, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, and baptism, which corresponds to this. And then it, I'm going to pause here. It trails off and goes farther. Um, normally this is not a passage that people preach from, but because we go straight through books here, there it is. We're going to talk about it. There is a word in here that I really want to pull out that I think is, is vital. It's a very special way that the apostles and the disciples and the early Christians um, understood the Old Testament. Um, and it should be very important to us. And I'm going to explain why it's important to us this morning. The word is, uh, is um, baptism, which corresponds. So the word corresponds is this very important word, antitipos. Everyone say antitipos. There you go. Uh, it means antitype. It is the inverse of something else. Um, As confusing as that sounds, the best way to describe it is this, Um, a seal in wax sealed onto a letter. You have the image here, whether it's a ring or an insignia or a necklace or however it was done in ancient times, whoever was doing it would do it differently. Pressed into the wax leaves an identical image that was there except it's inverted. It's the inverse of that. Okay So um, Peter talks about Over the next few verses Several things that are What he calls antitypos. They are antitypes Of different things um, And so I want to Like I said I had to do, make some drawings this morning Here's one of them It's very impressive um, uh, It's It's uh, I want us to sort of use our imagination this morning. Like I said, this is, this is going to go all over the board, and, and it will make sense in the end, I'm pretty sure. I Almost promise you. Um, I want you to imagine that you are sort of a settler in ancient times in a world, and you walk up to... You, you find this land where there are these ancient markings. Oh, here you are. Um, and you find these sort of ancient markings, if you will. And... Um, I'm not all that creative. All I could come up with was some triangles. It, it made sense to me. Um, and you find these ancient sort of things, and, and they seem to have some kind of meaning, but you can't really lay it out and say, this is what this means. You don't really know, but there they are, and you have to navigate them as you live your life. And so you start a city, and you settle down, and you have a family, and you kind of live there. Um, and as you are dwelling here in this place, there is these things are here, these tracks, these imprints, um, antitypes, if you will, but you don't know that yet. And they're made and they're here and and you sometimes have to navigate them, cross over them, climb into them, climb out of them. And it it just seems like they're there for a reason, but you don't know what it is. And so people sort of tell stories about, um, well, here's what I think happened. Here's what I think this means and here's what I think this means. And they're all trying to grasp at meaning for these things, these markings that are there. And a day comes when something happens and descends and you finally sort of... uh, And you find sort of a missing piece, and it fits, and it's perfect. And you realize, you come to realize what you had always suspected that these things have meaning, that they belong there, that someone, a mind, put them there and and did that and, and used them for something. And suddenly you find the other half, and you come to find that they fit perfectly together. And now the things that you have always suspected are confirmed and you find meaning. I say all of this, and I, I want us to all imagine this, because this is exactly how the, um, the followers of Jesus understood scriptures. This is exactly how they understood the Old Testament, that there was a time when people were living uh, in this world, and there were these things that they didn't fully understand but were there, and they seemed orderly, um, and they seemed like they had meaning and purpose and all they could do was grasp at straws trying to fully understand them but they never really could and then along comes Jesus and the church and things start to make sense all kinds of things just start lining up and you start getting it um the new testament authors um they did not ignore the old testament oftentimes in churches today people ignore the old testament um, they didn't try to do that. They didn't try to throw it away. They believed that the Old Testament was the antitype um, to the message of God. Um, they believed that all of the events in the Old Testament were impressions that in, when pressed up against the message of Jesus made sense when these things were put together. They understood it. And sometimes they would talk about Jesus as if they say Jesus was the scapegoat uh, in Leviticus 16. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the Passover lamb. He was the bread of, uh, in the Holy of Holies. He was the lamp Um, on the lampstand in the Holy of Holies. All of these things started to make sense. And as they looked at Jesus, they started to see their heritage, where they came from. And things started making sense to them. And they could breathe together a sigh of, oh, I get it. I understand what God has been doing all along now that this has come to light. Are you with me? So um, this didn't just stay like this. This actually progressed into a phase where the disciples of Jesus started to realize that their own lives bore the fingerprints of God, that they could look at things in their life and they could look at the life of Jesus and they could see how these things that they were experiencing, that they were feeling began to have intense meaning in light of everything that Jesus taught them. Um, and so, you know, there's always been this sense that we, you know, we have this love, we desire to connect um, with a spouse and come together um, and bear children and, and that's the physical sense, you know, coming together and, and bearing children. Um, that is the fruit of, of, of our love. And then if you look at the inverse of that, the spiritual side, you, you think about God and you say we are bound together with God. And scriptures say that this union of God and us, um, it bears fruits and the people can see it. Um, And so there is this physical world, and then there's the spiritual world, and they they seem to make sense, they seem to fit together, and these emotions and feelings we've always had start to find meaning and purpose in all of this. And then you go a little farther, and and philosophers write about appetites, how you have, for every appetite you have, there's something to to meet it. Um, You get really hungry, well, surprise, surprise, there's food. It meets that appetite. Um, You get very, very thirsty. Well, it just so happens that there's water, which is there to meet that appetite. Sometimes you get very lonely, and that's why we have other people and conversation and relationships and friendships to meet that. Um, But then there's this side of us that we all kind of feel that is very, very spiritual, and we feel like there is meaning and purpose and even though everyone kind of out there in, in, in the philosophical and scientific world is telling you, no, there's no meaning and purpose, it's all just a big accident, something inside of you, there's this appetite that says, no, there's, there's got to be something here to meet my need. There's got to be, I have these needs inside of me for spiritual connection, for meaning and purpose. And then you look at scriptures and you see that, yes, there is fulfillment. It does fulfill those aspects of your life. And you come to the realization that every appetite that you have actually coexists with something that meets it. It is an anti-type. There is something to push into it and to grant access to that. And you look at other things in life, like sex, this desire to come together and be wrapped up in another person and be so close with another person. And this speaks of our desire for connection with someone outside of ourselves. Why do we have to have this connection with someone? Why are we not fully secure in ourselves that we can just not connect with anybody? We weren't created that way. Scriptures teach us that we are to rely on something outside of ourselves. We know it's outside of our very existence, outside of our very world. There is something else that is there for us to connect to. And all of these things in our life speak. They are the fingerprints, if you will, of a spiritual God that is there. They are the antitype to what God is pressing upon our hearts. Okay? Um, In this passage, um, I see several different antitypes that he talks about, and there's going to be plenty more over the next few weeks. Um, But they are quite beautiful. Um, And and so I want to look at a few of them. The first one actually starts in verse 17. Um, And so Peter is writing to people who are suffering. And he writes to them, and they are terrified of what is coming. They're terrified of what they're going through. And he writes to them and he says, your suffering is not just mindless. Your suffering has meaning. It is actually an anti-type of something else. And here's what he says. Here's how he puts it. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so, he says, you are suffering, and you don't find meaning in your suffering, but I want to point to Jesus. Jesus also suffered. And if you look at your suffering in light of Jesus, I want you to think about what came of Jesus' suffering. Good can come from suffering. Scriptures talk about this a lot. James writes about about, how various trials produce patience and they purify us. The word he uses there is sort of like um, gold being melted down and impurity scraped off the top. That's how he talks about suffering. Um, And so he says, when you look at Jesus, you see the suffering that he went through was intense and, and terrible, and he didn't want to go through it any more than you want to go through what you are maybe facing. And... In the end, it says that Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. In the end, the suffering of Jesus brought people to God. It was used for good. It it ended up having meaning and purpose. And so they start to see their own suffering in the light of God as having meaning and purpose. Now, let's go to the next passage. Um, Verse 19 through 20. A lot of scholars actually say that this is this cluster of words is, is the words that go together, and that there's some awkward punctuation which we've always been confused about. Um, I kind of back what those scholars say, and so I'm going to go from this angle, that's all I can do, um, that these words are one coherent thought. Uh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Um, talking about Jesus, proclaim something to someone. Um, honestly the best way for me to do this is also to show you another drawing that I made that's really bad Um, sort of a timeline so someone is in prison over here, they're in bondage they're in prison Um, because they did not obey so they ignored, they disobeyed some teachings Um, up top it says and and they were proclaimed to them so he proclaimed to the spirits in prison They they did not obey and here they are and so there's This is one of the ways that we understand this. This is the one that I think makes the most sense. Um, And the reason I think it makes the most sense is because it it lines up perfectly with what the entire message of, especially the Old Testament, is about. Um, Let me show you another terrible drawing. Um, Here's the Old Testament in a nutshell. It's, It's the very beginning. It's the story of Genesis. Here we are existing and we have two choices. We have the tree of life and then we have... Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we have to make this choice. And they both actually, in the end, reveal to you who God is. Um, one of them through being close to, to and, and being nurtured to God, by being nurtured by God, being close to God, and, and feeling His love and affection and forgiveness. And the other one. Um, the the, the nature of God is revealed to you because you're on the end and you look over across the chasm and you see how good things could have been and how you should have stayed with him and where you are now is really rough and and, and you want to go back and from the other side, you see how good God is because of how terrible it is over here. Um, And so this passage to me mirrors this and this mirrors all of the Old Testament. Um, I mean, eating from the wrong tree gets you kicked out of perfectly good gardens. It, uh, it gets you, it gets you th- thrown into bondage in Egypt. It gets you exiled several times. It, it makes you wander in the wilderness, in the desert, when you're supposed to be living it up in the place that God gave you to live. And every time God's people ate from the wrong tree, they ended up in bondage. And it was rough. It was difficult. And they look across the chasm and they say, I wish I had done this different and I wish I was back There, I wish I had made better choices. Um, From the beginning to end, we we always find in scriptures that that when we live in the path of God, we find freedom and when we venture out on our own, we become enslaved. There is a way God intended for us to live. When we live this way, we are free and we are joyful and things are good. We've been talking about what it means to have the good life as Peter lays it out. Um, And when we don't, when we live this other way, we end up enslaved in bondage. If you don't believe me, and come down here sometime on a Friday or Saturday night and, and sit in on Alcoholics Anonymous groups and hear the bondage that they're trying to free themselves from. It's very difficult. It's very complicated. Um, speak to the many people in this room who are trying to free themselves from addictions um, of media and, and pornography and um, just even food and just all kinds of substance abuse. All these addictions, there's, there's a way we are supposed to live. And when we live that way, we are free. When we don't live that way, we end up in bondage. And lots of people here know this from experience. And they would tell you, live the way you were supposed to live. You will find freedom and flourishing. And so um, the Old Testament points to Jesus. It points to um, the fact that there is someone who has an intention for your life uh, to give you life abundantly. Now, Mixed up in this, there's a lot more. Let's go to the next passage. Let's go to uh, verse 20, start halfway through. I call it 20b. "'When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him.'" All kinds of stuff in here that needs to be pulled out and talked about. Um, but we have to preface this with the fact that any first century Jewish conversation about Noah and the ark needs to be understood in the light of what they believed that represented. They also looked at that event as an antitype to something else. Um, and we can best explain this by pulling out uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. The command from God to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Um, oftentimes we think the word ark means large boat. It's not what it means. Um, and there's really not places in history where giant boats are called arks. Um, ark is actually, the word that is used there is actually a word that is much closer to the word for casket, Um, which is actually very fitting. The only other time the word ark is used in scriptures um, refers to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why would these things, why would the word casket be used to describe these things? It's actually very, very fitting uh, with the things that these arks contained. Uh, The Ark of Noah contained fallen man who was spiritually dead and separated from his life source, and he was being rescued from a world that was being destroyed. Um, the Ark of the Covenant contained the law, which proved to the people that, that they were spiritually dead because they were separated from it. So each Ark, both, they both contained inside of them sort of the spiritually dead. The laws, which were broken, were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The people who had sinned against God and destroyed this world were spiritually sort of cut off, and, and there's just a few left and they are brought in. Broken man is brought inside for salvation. Now, um, so there's that. And there's more in this verse. Um, make, the, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Uh, this is a great word. The word pitch is the Hebrew word kafar. All right. A few of you are still with me. Um, it means to appease, to cleanse, to atone. It, it's not just a word that describes some black tar that would cover the outside of it. Uh, it is a meaningful word. We can't just pass by these ancient words. They have a lot more meaning than we give them credit for oftentimes. Um, The word "kafar" to appease, to cleanse, to tone. So the ark, think about this, is covered with atonement, if you will. Now, Noah's ark, covered in atonement. Uh, The ark of the covenant. Once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would bring the blood of atonement and he would pour it and throw it and splatter it upon the mercy seat, the top of the ark. In other words, the ark would become covered in the atonement and so this is not just about two separate things these are about the same thing and I want there's, there's actually a lot more to this um, so this happened every single year after the atonement was, was covered after the, after the ark of the covenant was covered in atonement you know what would happen? It would be followed by 10 days, which is called 10 days of awe. The word is, uh, the, the Hebrew phrase is tamim Norem." It's the days of awe. It's, it's mainly, it's a time when the people would, after their sins are paid for, spend time in repentance for 10 days and think about what they have done. And then they would be given a fresh start in a new year, in a new way of living, free of the sins that they had before. And so atonement happened every year, followed by 10 days of repentance. Noah and his family were in the ark actually for one year, in 10 days. It all is about the same thing. The ark is the antitype of the ark, and both of these things are the antitype of who? Jesus, whose blood, atoning blood, ran down to the earth for us. The ark is about Jesus, And so the writers of the New Testament and and the disciples, the apostles, they look back and they see, oh, this is about Jesus. This was never just about some boat floating in the water in the middle of destruction. This is about Jesus. It has much more meaning than we ever thought it ever had. And so let's go now um, to verse 21. He talks about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds the antitype to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Now, a casual reading of this verse uh, will sort of lead you to believe that what he's saying is that we are saved through baptism. That's a misunderstanding of this verse entirely. Uh, this verse is not, and perhaps you've heard that, but this verse is not saying that it is the baptism which saves you. Uh, so let's, let's let's look at it again baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body so it's not the washing it's not the going under the water and then coming back up or the sprinkling or three times forward or one time backwards I, I would I grew up going to a great brethren church and they would dunk you three times forward and, and someone I would I would like to start another denomination where we drop people from planes It'd just be fun um, <laughs> it's not about how you go under the water that's not what it's about um, and that's not at all what it's about it's he says it's not the removal of dirt. It's not the ritual washing. Wash, that, this is all pointing back to the ritual washing of the priest going into the temple. That's not what it is. He says it's an appeal to God for good conscience. Uh, we have to look at this word. Appeal is the word eperotema. Ah, we're getting better. Uh, the binding question in a contract which validates it legally. So let's put this in, uh, in normal terms. Um, In every business contract in ancient times, they weren't always done on paper or parchment or clay. Um, It was actually very rare to write stuff down back then. There would be an action. Maybe an animal would be cut in half and you would both walk between it. There would be witnesses. um, But there was always an appeal that would solidify the contract. The appeal would always be a question that would be asked and an answer that would be given, and it would be clear as day. And it would go like this. Do you accept the terms of this contract and bind yourself to observe them? And the answer was yes. And everyone who was there to witness it knew when that happened, that appeal was given, when that eperotema happened, this was a binding legal contract. And so what he's saying is it's not the water, it's not the dunking or the sprinkling, none of that. It is the appeal, the commitment that you make. And so what Peter's saying to them saying is saying is, is basically that. Their baptism was their yes answer. Maybe your baptism is your yes answer. Maybe you'd like to be baptized and you, that's, that's the moment. that you want to go public and let everybody know I'm in? Um, in their baptism, they made a pledge in their hearts, and it was a pledge that seals them with, with pitch, if you will, like Noah in the flood or like the broken laws in the Ark of the Covenant Jesus' blood has covered them. They are sealed. They are his. And the destruction going on all around them will not touch them. That's what all of this is about. That's what all of this is about. And so it is the fact that they stepped up and said, God, cover me. Cover me, please. Cover me with your atonement. All of this is pointing to that. And so I want to bring us back to my terrible hand drawing. Because there is a way that we need to look at our lives. There is a way that we need to move through this world um, and have a certain mindset that basically is looking at things, the things in our life that don't seem to make a lot of sense, the things that are difficult, that we have to navigate, the pits we fall into and have to climb out, the things we have to build bridges over, the things that are annoying and that we wish weren't there, we can look at them through the lens of Jesus and we can find peace knowing that they actually start to make sense. We can actually find growth and, and purity in them. We can become more like Jesus in them. We always say, um, I, I believe it was, it was Timothy Keller who originally um, said this, it's the things that exist in your life right now are necessary for you to become what you need to become. And the things that are not in your life are not necessary for you to become what you need to become. Whatever it is that you have, whether good or bad or trial, is there to bring you to where God wants you to be whatever you are missing, you feel like you're missing is not necessary for you to become what you need to be. It's not. Or God would have given it to you. And so when we look at our life this way, we start to see our pain and our trials as actually having meaning that they fit into something that they are the fingerprints of God, the anti, uh, the, the anti-type of something that God is doing. Um, And then we start to look at at the people in our lives as actually important. They're there for a reason. Maybe it is some kind of divine appointment. Um, It it sort of dawned on me the other day that when when you are at the grocery store and you end up in the line with... By the way, when you're at the grocery store and you're trying to pick a line, always pick the line with the most amount of guys in it because they don't use coupons, and it'll go quicker. That's the point. Um, But when you end up in that long line and everyone's counting out their coupons, and you are there and you're kind of a prisoner for the next, what, 20 minutes? Who knows? Um and you're there and you're just sort of stuck. Maybe this is some kind of divine appointment. God brought you to this place and set you there behind this person or in front of this other person. And, and maybe you should just take some time and say, what does this, What could this possibly mean in the grand scheme of, of eternity? Uh, this might be a divine appointment for me to pray for this person. And that prayer you pray over this person for their flourishing, for their, their joy, for their salvation, for them to know, come close to God and know him and for him to be revealed to them. Um, that might be the only prayer that is prayed over them all day or all week or all year. It might be actually the first prayer that has ever been prayed over them. Every single moment of your day can, can be used and leveraged to find meaning and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is how Paul could be chained to a wall in prison and write out and ink out these incredible letters that people today find hope and joy in. While wow, he's chained to the wall, this is how the disciples could be in prison and singing out hymns and talking to the guard about Jesus. Because every moment made sense, every moment had purpose. There was a reason they they were there. Paul was at one point trying to go to one city and he got turned away. Um, the soldiers wouldn't let him go, and he's like, "Oh, okay. I, I guess I'm supposed to go this way. Awesome." He didn't throw a fit and say, "Do you know who I am?" He said, "Oh, here we go, God. Let's go." I'll, I thought, I'm sorry, I thought it was that way. It's over here. <laughs> and this is how God's people learn to live their life. We can learn this, we can do this. This can be us. Our life can be filled with just anti types of exactly what God is doing. And and, and it's the, the great quote from Kierkegaard, it's as my absolute favorite. Life can only be understood backwards, but it can only be only be lived forwards. As you live, you look back and you say, Oh. I get it. It fits. It works. This is the hope that we have. That God is doing something. This is heading somewhere. That he will, in the end, have his day where things will be made right again. And we have a part to play in this. And so we're going to move towards communion. And so our communion servers, if you guys are here, you guys can go ahead and and prepare and get ready for this. Um, As we go to communion today, I want to... um, I want for all of us to ponder the things in our life that we don't understand. We don't understand why they're here. We don't understand why we have them. Why me? Um, Even the good things. Why? Why is this incredible thing happening to me and not someone else? And I want us to pause and I want us to reach out to God and say, Is it possible that this is your hand doing something? That this could have meaning? Is it possible that this has meaning? I would argue that it does. The, the apostles would argue that it does. Jesus would argue that he absolutely is working and doing something every moment of the day. And the question is whether or not you see it. And I want to move in this direction. And as we take communion today, as our communion servers are spreading out around the room, um, I want to move in this direction. I want us to start pondering every moment as divine appointment, there is a reason and, and, and a season for everything. Okay? So let's pray and we'll take communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, please take communion with us. We would love that. Um, And uh, if you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room, and uh, somebody will be be there to pray for you. If you have questions, I would love to stick around and talk to you afterwards. If if you uh, are interested in talking more about Jesus, becoming a follower of Christ, um, that would be incredible. And uh, I, I would love to talk to you about that. If you need to talk about anything, the historicity of Jesus or the problems you're having, the skepticism you have with scriptures and Christianity, this is an open place. Your questions are welcome. Not guaranteeing we have all the answers. We'll do what we can. So um, let's pray. And let's take communion. Father, we love you. Thank you for what you are doing with us in our lives. Guide us, mold us, make us um, make us more aware of you daily. Make us more aware that things actually make sense, and and we can find the sense in it. And we can uh, we can stand there in the rain, and we can worship you, knowing that. That it's okay. That this is heading somewhere. Let us look back and, and uh, mourn for our failures, but, but try to find hope in the fact that if not for those things, we wouldn't know what we know now. And let us bask in that, that maybe it's a little bit of grace in difficult times. We love you, Father. Continue to draw people to yourself, people in this room that need to come close to you. Draw them in. Um, Thank you for letting us call ourselves Christians. It's an honor to bear your name, to be called your body, to do your work. Thank you. Be with us now as we take communion. Humble us. Bring us to repentance. In your name, amen.